Hey folks, I have a super exciting announcement to make. I am looking for a career success coach and I'm curious, maybe it's you. Liam Casper Coaching is expanding and I am looking for someone to come and join my team that's a clinician here in Australia that can help me deliver these transformational coaching programs to clinicians across Australia, New Zealand and the world. So if that's you, I encourage you strongly to dive into the show notes, click the link, check out the job online. It's posted across all the social media platforms and apply. I would love to hear from you and I'm looking forward to welcoming one of you into Liam Caswell Coaching as a career success coach, changing clinicians' lives and careers. Let's do this. Hello, you are listening to the High Performance Nursing Podcast with me, Liam Caswell, where I help clinicians just like you take control of their careers and remove all the things stopping you from achieving your biggest goals. Let's dive in. Hello and welcome back to the High Performance Nursing Podcast. We are so grateful that you are here sharing your time, your precious time with us today. Today, I've got a fabulous guest for you. Welcome, Sarah Morse, to the podcast. Hi. (laughs) Super exciting to have you here. Um, Let me tell you a little bit about Sarah and we'll dive into Sarah's career story and all of the things. So Sarah is a former New South Wales Young Australian of the Year. Sarah draws on 20 years as a nurse and a humanitarian to bring a uniquely global and deeply human perspective to the way humans think, work and behave. I'm already very excited about this. Specialising in cancer services and palliative care and having worked with some of the world's poorest people, Sarah is known for her deep commitment to nursing the human spirit. Through her personal experience of burnout, Sarah believes that empowering people to thrive in the workplace is pivotal to a healthy workforce. Amen. Most recently, Sarah worked as a health advisor in a safe house in Spain for survivors of human trafficking and is the director of Unchained Solutions, a social enterprise aimed at impacting modern slavery. Sarah is a highly sought after motivational speaker who speaks on cultivating a culture of courage. It's like CPR for your workforce. Wow. We are blessed to have you here, Sarah. I'm so, so excited to dive into all of this. And of course, you and I collaborated on a project with the ABC about a year ago now. And we'll pop the link to that interview in the show notes. That was such a cool experience where we were interviewed live on air, uh, you and uh, Zara Lord from YouPaged and myself. A super cool experience. And I got to know a bit about you then. But let's dive into your career story up until this point. So if you can, give us a bit of a rundown of how you've gone from working in healthcare as a nurse to becoming a professional speaker. Yeah, wow. It's been a bit of a journey. So not a a linear journey. So I guess my nursing career journey looks a little bit out of the ordinary. So, I mean, I I became a nurse because I was passionate about serving the poor. So I guess my story starts as a 17-year-old. I won uh, the World Vision Study Tour with the 40-hour famine. I don't know if some of your listeners might remember that, but um, every year they picked four or five young people to go and visit some of their projects. So I was lucky enough to win one of those study tours to Zimbabwe and Zambia. And I had already planned on being a nurse, but that trip right before I started my nursing degree was really life-changing for me when I, I encountered poverty for the first time. And I, and I saw the depth of people suffering and I thought maybe there's, there's something that I can do here. 
so I started my nursing degree and on my, my very first day of nursing, I met my best friend who's still my best friend now. She's now a doctor. We started off in nursing together and she had also just been to Zambia and also seen some of the projects so, or similar projects to what I had seen like just a few weeks before. And so we bonded straight away over, you know, our, our first day at uni. And, uh, you know, at the end of second year of uni, we actually went to Zambia and worked in a primary healthcare clinic as nursing students and delivered babies. And, uh, you know, we also went to India as well. And they, they let us, you know, assist in a surgery and cesarean section. And there was a blackout and it was like, you know, it was full. Of, there was, you know, the windows were broken. There were cows like walking past outside. And then we're in the middle of like this, you know, cesarean section and there was a blackout. So the doctor just paused and then the generator kicked in and, you know, we kept going. So we had we had lots of weird and, and wonderful experiences. So I guess that's the reason why I became a nurse. And so over the last 20 years since I've been registered, uh, I've had lots of opportunities to work in different humanitarian projects. Uh, so I worked in an orphanage uh, in Romania for two years, working with disabled kids, doing therapy with them. I've also mm. led a lot of short-term projects to different parts of the world, to Quito and Ecuador, working with refugees in Athens. And then I got married to, to my husband and uh, we went together to Spain to work in the area of human trafficking intervention. And so that's how I ended up working in the safe house for survivors there in Spain. So, you know, mm. in between all of that, I've been uh, nursing here in Australia as well. So, you know, that looked like living overseas for a few years, coming back, nursing for a few years, going back, maintaining my registration and requirements. So, yeah, and that's one of the things I love about nursing is just the diversity and the flexibility that it can bring. So, you know, some of those jobs that I had when I was home were, for example, I worked um, in a sleep clinic for, for six months while my baby was small. I'd put her down to, to bed. I'd go to work overnight at the sleep clinic. I'd come home, feed her, go to sleep myself. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, so that kind of opportunity that nursing offers, you know, the, the flexibility and the opportunity. So, yeah, so that that's sort of how I um, balanced, you know, nursing and humanitarian work. So when I'm here in Australia, my sort of niche is palliative care and oncology. And so that was the last clinical role that I had was working on a palliative care ward. And then, yeah, the leap into professional speaking well, I've always wanted to be a professional speaker since I was young, since I was about 15. Mm -hmm. I went to Toastmasters for the first time, loved it. And I thought, I wonder if I could get paid to do this. And it's taken me this long to figure it out how to do it. So yeah, I'm super excited about now I get to speak to people on stages, uh, you know, and particularly to speak to nurses and other health professionals around mm -hmm. this cultivating a culture of courage. So just super excited about where, you know, a nursing career can take us. Mm, I love that so much. It's so inspiring. And I love that you're creating your own path. You're literally paving the way. Um, I don't know very many nurses that have become professional speakers. It's not been on my radar, but it's phenomenal. And that you're right, you can take your career anywhere. And that's what this podcast really is about, is helping people see that you don't really need to know how you're going to get there. Like you knew years ago that you wanted to do this and you've just took action to make it happen for you, right? And there's so many amazing things that you've done on the way. I think sometimes we can get caught up in thinking that there's a right or wrong way to do the career. Um, instead of just leaning into what is right for you in the moment. And it sounds like you've been able to make your career work for you, to your strengths and to your passions. 
Yeah, that's right. And you know, for other people that looks completely different, you know, like in my in my last role, it was a it was a weird ward. It was a palliative care slash uh, cardiac ward. And mm-hmm. so there's two very different types of nurses there. There's the, you know, the sort of A type box ticking uh, cardiac nurses who are great in the in the middle of an arrest, but not so great when you've got a slowly deteriorating patient looking after their family as well but what I was going to say was there was a CNC there who just she was just passionate about the heart she was so you know she'd been doing that job for 10 years she'd been CNC of cardiac for I don't know at least 15 years you know and every day turn up to work thought about the heart like she knew everything there was to know about her heart and I just had so much respect for her but her journey uh, was so different to mine and you know but she was doing what she loved so yeah. I guess that's the thing is to find the thing that you love and then do that. And for me, that's looked like, you know, it's looked like traveling. It's looked like flexibility. It's looked like lots and lots and lots of different opportunities all smooshed together into now this one place. Mm, I love that. I'm curious about your humanitarian experience. It's amazing. And what a beautiful wealth of experience um, that you have in that space. I'm curious, what are some of the main learnings that you gained from doing the humanity? You continue to do the work, obviously. What are some of the main insights or learnings as a clinician that you can take away from your experiences? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, oftentimes as a nurse trained in Australia, it's very hard um, because we come in with our our set of expectations of what is, uh, you know, workplace health and safety, what is infection control, and some of these places you get to and they just don't have, like in, in the orphanage in Romania, there was literally no soap. There was no soap. So mm-hmm. it's like, well, how do we wash our hands then? So we took in our own hand gel, looking at the resources that we had available in in uh, Romania. I mean, we literally had nothing. We were everything to those children. We were nurses, physios, OTs, you know, nutritionists. Early on, we had a physio that came in and did a week training with us. And she basically showed us how to use nothing, just only our hands to actually do therapy with the children. And that we used that program then from then on in terms of strengthening their limbs. So I think we become very used to here in Australia being part of a multidisciplinary team, having access to resources, just expectations around PPE and infection control. Mm So I think that's probably the biggest thing I've learned is what we can actually do with next to nothing, just only our knowledge and our and our compassion and our, you know, using our own hands. But also then it's what we can learn from those people as well. And I think in lots of those situations, I've learned as much as I've given. Learning, learning from, like, for example, those the workers that work there in that orphanage, we had to, we worked with them for about a year before they wanted to learn from us. And so we had to just... Mm-hmm be really humble, really gentle, not be in there and boss them around and be like, this is how you do it, blah, blah, blah. You know, eventually after a whole year, they came to us and said, we can see that you're making a difference for these children. Can you show us what you're doing? Mm. Uh, And so, and that was really hard that year, just watching them, the workers not really caring properly for the children because they had lost hope themselves. They'd lost the understanding that they could actually do something to help they're like well we have nothing so we won't do anything kind of thing Mm -hmm. so I think that's probably you know one of the things I've learned as well is learning from the people that you're there to work with as well yeah such a good message for clinicians anywhere is learning from our patients right and really listening and getting to know them um, and remembering that they are like our first teacher like the patients you know they know themselves 
the best. Mm. Um, and often as clinicians, like in our system, we can come in as if we're the authority. Um, and it's really about creating that equal partnership there um, to allow you to build trust um, and rapport with them. And also on the other side of that, what you just talked about there is that gratitude for what we have. I haven't done a lot of humanitarian work, but I did go to Fiji and worked there um, for six weeks. And that was such a great insight into how lucky we truly are, in a mm. sense, in terms of what we have access to. And yeah, like, you know, reusing needles and all of this stuff that we're taught. No, 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 don't do that. Mm-hmm. Right. And you really have to shift your mindset around it and then just work with what you have and leave all yeah. judgment side. Yeah, that's right. I remember one time in Indonesia, we were visiting this village and we weren't there as health workers. We were visiting a micro enterprise program, uh, but we went to this village and there was this lady who'd like been out making, um, picking coconuts for us so she could make the coconut juice that they wanted to serve. And I don't know, we couldn't really understand the story, but somehow she'd gotten hit by a stone and she had this like huge swollen um, face and like her tooth was sort of half hanging out and was like, you know, it had been the day before and was already getting infected. And, you know, and I, I just happened to have some antibiotics in my bag for us like for the team uh and I was like oh well we can't leave you like that you know we can get antibiotics some other place like so I just gave her my antibiotics that I had in my little traveling kit and then before I knew it like word had got out that there was a nurse in the village right and there was this long line going out from this lady's house and they all wanted to come and say and I'm like I, like what do I do I'm not I'm not equipped I'm not a diagnostician I haven't worked in ED I don't you know but basically what we just did we just you know we had a first aid kit we had like all of us had antibiotics on us we all had you know band-aids and and you know a couple of bandages and stuff like that and so we basically I just kind of called the team together I was like hey just give me everything you've got <laughs> and we just ran a little impromptu clinic you know um in the middle of some village in Indonesia and yeah again it's a, it's just about that that gratitude of like you know what by the next day, we'll be back in the city. We can go buy some more stuff, you know. But these people are so um, so grateful as well for anything that you can give them. Yeah. Mm, such a deep sense of gratitude. I'm curious, there will be people listening that would love to get into humanitarian work. What would be your advice to nurses that want to do that kind of work? Yeah, I think doing a short-term project is probably the best place to start because, um, you know, this humanitarian work looks different in lots of different parts of the world. And, uh, you know, I, I, growing up, sort of imagined myself working in the slums of India uh, and then on that trip with my with my best friend, as a second-year nursing student, we went to the slums of India and I thought, no, this isn't my calling, <laughs> uh, you know, and, and, uh, and, that, and it's really hard. You have to really love it there, you know. You have to really, really love it and want to be there. And I just was like, I just don't think I can do it. And that wasn't even in the slums. It wasn't just in the towns, you know. Uh, and so, yeah, working in a, in a safe house in Europe wasn't really on my game plan, but that was equally effective. So I think doing a short-term trip to start with, and there are a number of groups who do medical mission and they do, you know, there's kind of three to six week kind of placements, like this is probably similar to what you went on. Mm. I think that's probably a really good idea to just, and if you don't like the first one, well, maybe try a different part of the world, different part of the country, because there's need everywhere. Mm. You know, and sometimes it's just, you know, you go to one African village and it's just that one kid in that village that grabs your heart and that's, the place that you end up going, you know? So it's kind of, I would say, first of all, start with a, with a short term. Don't sign up for, you know, a two, two year assignment before you really know what you're getting yourself into. Um, but I, I would recommend it really for everybody because I think we do have so much. Um, and it really can just change your perspective of the, of the world and how we view the world, you know? 
I totally agree with you. Such great advice. So let's pivot and talk about your speaking career. Let's talk about becoming a professional speaker because I'm intrigued on a few levels. What does it take to get yourself to a place to then put yourself out there and be a professional speaker? Because I find as I've built my career and I moved more into kind of entrepreneurship and business, there's an identity shift at every stage, right? Even moving from clinician to like leader, uh, nurse unit manager to educator, there's like a, a major identity shift and we've kind of got to reaffirm ourselves. So I'm curious, like what came up for you, if you're happy to share um, on that process and how do you work through that so that you can step into this and stand on the stage in front of hundreds of people? Yeah, it is. That's a really great question. And it is a really big process. So I think I started really hardcore pursuing this years ago. And I look at where I've come from. I did lots of practical things. For example, I I researched, okay, I've been wanting this for 20 years. How do I become a professional speaker? So I signed up for something called the Speakers Institute. And I went there and I did training with them. And then I joined an association, the Professional Speakers Australia. And that's where I started really learning all the different skills and, and knowledge, not just to be a speaker. So for me, being a speaker on a stage, that's the easy bit. But they say that's about the first 10% as being a good speaker. And the 90% is actually running the business. And that's the bit that I struggle with. You know, having just been a nurse, not just a nurse, but having been a nurse, I don't have the business experience. How to run a business, how to actually do the sales and marketing, how to develop the brand, how to have that clear message to market, all of those things. And all of that, like you said, took a big internal process. So that was a big process of me saying, I can do this, you know, and if I can't, I'll outsource it, you know. Um, and so, you know, I've just I've brought on a, a marketing assistant because I'm just not good at the, at the marketing kind of thing, you know. So really realizing, you know, finding the process, getting help from, you know, people who've done it before. And then also, and it also is part of it, it's just about walking the journey, right? So mm-hmm. about doing the journey and then evolving into this place. I'm sure I'll look back and think, whoa, yeah, I thought I was ready. <laughs> you know, we're always evolving. But I think it was a really um, interesting juxtaposition because I was, while I was doing that, I was working as a clinical nurse. Right. Mm-hmm. So I'd have like literally days where it was like on stage in this beautiful red ball gown, like you're receiving this big award, like, it's, you know, amazing. And literally like the next day up at six o'clock and onto a morning <laughs> shift and like, you know, helping someone on the bathroom, you know, and that that mental shift from that big stage to like, I'm here in the bathroom in a particularly smelly situation, Uh, (laughs) um, you know, but that moment to that patient is equally Mm. as important, right? So that was that headspace. And I, and I felt like I was doing mental gymnastics the whole time of like, you know, I can do it. I can do it. I'm a professional speaker. I can do it. I can do it. I can do it. I can do it too. I'm a ward nurse. I've just got to do what I'm told. I've got to get through my shift. I've got to manage my time. I've got to deliver care for these patients. Right. So that, that mental shift, it really was really hard. It felt like I was, you know, doing like literally flipping from one headspace yeah. to the next. So, um, yeah, so I, I've been doing this full time now. Uh, and that clarity of headspace has been really helpful just to be like, this is what I'm doing. This is who I am now. So mm-hmm. one of the things that I do to stay in that headspace is I've got um, affirmations that I do every morning. So when I'm out on my morning walk and I do the same route every day and the same spot at the same, you know, time every day, I do um, my affirmations, which are just, you know, I'm a professional speaker and I'm ready and I'm worth it. And I'll step Mm -hmm. onto the stages in front of me with strength and dignity kind of thing. So that's my affirmations. I do those every morning. 
and also have an awesome group of people around me. So people that are at the same stage as me, just, you know, launching into our professional speaking careers that we can call each other. I'm like, oh, I've had a wobbly day today. And they're like, you can do it, you can do it, you know. So, and I think that's really important because I don't think you can do these kind of things on your own. I think you need a team. Um, yeah. for when you do have those wobbly days and you, you know, maybe don't do your affirmations and forget to believe in yourself as much. Yeah, it's all about mindset. The more I learn about whatever you do in your career, be it in nursing or as a professional speaker or in business, it's all about the mindset that you bring to it. Um, and it, I'm glad you brought that up. That was my next question was like, how do you show up for yourself every day to make this a reality? Because a lot of people would like to stay in the comfort of not standing on the stage and being a speaker. Um, but instead, you choose to walk into the discomfort because your belief is so strong. And a lot of people just think that, oh, well, you know, Sarah might have X, Y, and Z that I don't have, or Liam might have X, Y, and Z that I don't have. But what I'm hearing is that it comes down to just setting yourself up for success and choosing to believe that you are totally capable of doing whatever you want to do. Would that be fair? Yeah. Yeah, and I like what you said about showing up for yourself, but I I think that it's the same whether you're stepping onto a stage or whether you're stepping into a bathroom with a patient. Mm -hmm. I think it's the same. Um, I like Brene Brown's definition of leadership. She says, um, a leader is anyone who takes responsibility for finding the potential in people and processes and has the courage to develop that potential. So if that's if showing up for yourself means getting up every day and being an excellent clinical nurse and impacting those patients that you're looking after, you know, caring for them for the best of their ability. I mean, I don't know about you, but the times when I've been a patient and you can tell the nurses that have turned up and the, and the nurses who haven't, right? And so, you know, regardless of whether it is that individual caring for the patient and that's what you're called to for the rest of your, your life and that's what you're passionate about, or stepping onto a stage in front of hundreds of people. I think the process is the same. It's about turning up for yourself and being committed to that thing that you've decided to do. So, mm. you know, and you can tell. You can tell the people who, who show up for themselves every day. So, you know, I'm a mom as well. I've got two little girls. And so and so that can be really hard to, um, oh, like, for example, to have even that morning routine, you know. Like, so this morning I like to, you know, just wake up and then have, like, um, I put on, like, a, a meditation uh, thing to kind of get myself in the right mindset and then go out for my walk, do my affirmations and all that kind of thing. So, but today, like my little girls got up early and so they came crashing into my bed at like six o'clock before I'd even had a chance to wake up. And they're like, mom, mom, you know, and they were like throwing, I don't even know, like it was just chaos, right? And then it was raining. And so would I go for my walk or not? And then I forgot to do my affirmations and then, right? So it's like, you know, we all have days like that too. So it's then, okay, it's just, I heard a definition of courage is that, you know, sometimes courage is just um, the, the courage to get up the next day and say, I'll try again. You know, it's not sometimes courage isn't this massive big thing. It's just like, you know what, I'm just going to get up tomorrow and I'm going to try again. Uh, And I'm going to show up for myself, you know, and my patients and the people in front of me tomorrow. Yeah, every day is a new start and you have full control over how you show up. That's one of the most beautiful things about being human is you get to every single day. And I love that setting yourself up for success with affirmations. For those listening that are applying for graduate programs at the moment, affirmations are going to get you there. They're one of the key things that we need to uh, be implementing to step into that belief and to practice believing that you're capable of it. Because, you know, uni up until this point, 
doesn't necessarily set you up to believe that you're capable of it. It's more of a scarcity mindset. And there's only X amount of programs or X amount of jobs. And we want to believe the opposite to be true, that you know anybody can get a job in the sector, for sure. I love that. Um, I would love to pivot and talk a little bit more about your work in workplace culture and developing workplace culture and all of the amazing stuff that you do in that space. So tell us why is, I think we all know the answer to this question, but tell us why is workplace culture so important and why should organisations across the board, healthcare in particular, be focusing on developing workplace culture? Yeah, I mean, I heard a good saying that, I don't remember who said it, but that, that culture is what happens when the boss isn't around. <laughs> and uh, and I think that's a really good definition of culture because you can have, you know, uh, mission statements on the wall, you know, at uh, my previous workplace, there was a, a lot of discussion amongst the nurses about the mission statement that was on the wall and the values that are written, you know, there. And it's like, really? You know, like, for example, one of the values was innovation. And yet we're being told, like, do the same thing the same way every day. And, and so there was conversations around, well, if they want us to innovate, like, is that for us? Cause, mm-hmm. or, or do they just expect the nurses not to do that? Like, you know, so, so there were, you know, conversations around because I'm interested in, I would like, you know, question people in the tea room and that kind of thing. But, you know, I mean, I think especially in, in uh, places like nursing where there's shift work and where, you know, the NAMA's only there for eight hours of a 24 hour day. You know, what happens? What happens on the evening shift? What happens on night shift? You know, how is that culture of that place actually embedding itself in the people? And, it, and so I think culture comes through in so many different ways. And culture is almost the, the unspoken things that are there. It's not the values on the wall. Although if you're intentional about culture, you're going to be intentional about living those values. But the culture really can impact what happens, what the way that people communicate, the way that people relate, you know, and in the case of nurses, the way that the patients are treated as well. So, uh, you know, in, in lots of places that I've worked, there's been a culture where, you know, the patient is sort of like, oh, you know, the naughty patient, you know, or the naughty patient in bed three, you know, or, or the culture of, you know, I, I once saw a nurse, like there was this lady lying in the bed just asking for a blanket. She'd been brought, brought back from x-ray without a blanket and she just buzzed for a blanket and the nurse walked in, threw the blanket on her and walked off, you know. And I, I sort of like walked in behind and sort of covered her up and tucked her in. She said, I'm freezing. Could you get me another blanket? And I went and got her another blanket. And, you know, you think, gosh, what's going on in that culture where that nurse thinks that that's okay for that to happen, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and that I, I strongly believe that kind of behavior comes from leadership. It comes from the managers and, you know, and it comes from higher up as well. So as that culture is formed on that, you know, on the CEO level, on that executive level, it really does filter down to the managers and then to the rest of the team as well. Mm, I think that's such a valid point. I definitely experienced that as a nurse unit manager. There's a dissonance between the time that I'm there and then when I leave and the after hours manager coming on board and then they, you know, maybe they're a bit more friendly with the staff than I am or there's less boundaries. You know, it really is a 24 hour thing that needs to be implemented and I totally agree that it comes from the top down we can all play our part for sure um I'm interested because you brought up like values and we are the values are shoved down our throats <laughs> at orientation and everybody sits there like mm-hmm, sure the values uh-huh and well a lot of clinicians don't live the values because they're not role modeled and I'm curious um because I find it interesting innovation is a value that a lot of organizations have But in healthcare, we're failure averse. Like we don't want to fail. We don't allow failure to happen. 
And in order to have an innovative culture, an innovative environment, my understanding is that failure is essential. So I'm just curious, like given your work in the space, what do you think about those values that, you know, on paper sound great, like patient-centered care? Well, if we were really doing patient-centered care, we'd have good staffing (laughs) and we'd have great workplace culture and we don't. So what are your kind of thoughts or your experiences of that? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really great question. You're good with the questions. Uh, I think it's really great because I I did have a positive experience at uh, my previous workplace where the NAM had been trained and raised up by an excellent leader and so she was an excellent leader herself and then the clinical nurse educator was also excellent and they were really strong at upholding those values. So that was a culture that was created specifically on our board. So where I talked about the throwing of the blanket, that was another ward. That was on our, on our ward, right? So I noticed the difference in the culture. Interestingly, I had a patient who who was an expert in workplace culture. He, he lectured on workplace culture. And so I was wheeling him down to um, X-ray one day. He goes, wow, this is a really, like, great culture in this place. Like, you know, the wardsmen are friendly. The people in X-ray are friendly. Like, you know, the nurses on your ward, like everyone, you know. And, and so we it was noticeable, you know, that, that mm. we, we had this conversation. So, so I, I saw that modeled from, from our CNE and from our NUM, this, this, you know, upholding excellence. And I see our CNE used to say, like, she's like, I'm going to hold you to 100% compliance. And she was really strict. Like, she'd go around, you get busted, like, if you, uh, you know, what a dodgy practice, but, you know, like, un- unhooked somebody's IV, for example, that was against ho- hospital policy. If that, you know, everyone did it all the time. Okay. Someone un- unpo- unhooked the, the IV. And if she walked past and she saw an IV bag, she'd, she'd like, take it down. So you'd come out from the toilet of taking the patient and your IV bag would be gone. And she'd be like, too late. Nope. Like, compliance, you know, like, she was strict. But she was kind and she was nice. She wasn't mean with it. You know what I mean? So that's the difference. I think you can uphold culture by example, by leading by example. But, um, you know, so she used to say, like, we know we know what happens after we go home. But if I hold you to 100% compliance, we trust that, you know, and she had stats to back it up, that, that people will, will then operate at 70% compliance. But if you start at 70%, like when everyone goes home, you're going to be operating at 40%. Right. Yeah. So I thought that was a really good. And so between the two of them, we had a really excellent culture that, um, you know, things like the numb would actually step in. And she was like this tiny little Indian lady. She was not massive herself. But I remember one day a, a patient, a very large man was being very threatening at the nurse's station. And she came out of her office like she, she looked like she could see this man was getting um, you know, aggressive, like leaning over the nurses station kind of thing. And we were all like, woo. And she stepped in. She physically stepped in between us and this giant man and eyeballed him and was like, right, I'm the manager here. What's your problem? And that gave us enough space to scatter. And we kind of scattered, but like stayed close just in case this guy got crazy, you know, and if we needed security backup or something, you know, but she, right. by her doing that and taking authority and eyeballing this man, like he backed down, you know. And so I learned a lot from watching her in terms of taking those courageous. And that's what I'm talking about, um, you know, cultivating uh, a culture of courage, that we take those courageous steps, but we need our leaders to be courageous. We can't have a value of courage and mm. then you've got leaders that don't back you up in, in, those, mm. in those crises. Same thing in an arrest situation, like the arrest buzzer would go off She'd be one of the first people there, you know, and then she would, uh, until the arrest team arrived, she would direct the arrest and she'd look around, she'd say, okay, um, yep, we've got all bases covered. Okay, you know, um, Sarah and these two nurses, you go back out and manage the ward. 
So she mm-hmm. was in that, she was leading in that situation where I'd been on other wards where an arrest happened and then I would still be in their office. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's like that, that, like you said, that example of leadership. And she had had somebody training her who was also an excellent leader. So, mm-hmm. you know, I feel really lucky that I, that I experienced that in that workplace. And then if I did get deployed to another ward, saw the difference between, mm-hmm. you know, our specific ward culture and what was happening in the rest of the hospital, which yeah. wasn't great, to be honest. Mm-hmm. It's palpable, hey? It's yep. so evident when you're in a great culture. Um, I'm curious, based on your experience, you touched on some of it there, but what do you think we need to be doing? What do you think we need to be doing to resolve the workplace issues that we have currently? Um, I talk a lot about taking like a self-leadership approach to really stepping back into your power and self-coaching yourself and all of the things that are out with your control um, in the workplace because nine times out of ten they don't serve you and consume a lot of your mind drama um, and effort. But what do you think organisations could be doing to resolve this issue moving forward? Yeah, so one of the analogies that I use is the um, between the flags analogy. So, um, you know, when we're when we're looking after our patients, at least here in New South Wales, we use between the flags. I know in other states it's not mm. a nationwide thing. I thought it was, but it's not. Uh, so, but everyone has a similar a similar guidelines, right? So, in terms of identifying the deteriorating patients, so we're talking about uh, what are the signs and symptoms of a deteriorating patient. And we know that we've become so good at identifying the signs and symptoms that the arrests, you know, the the number of arrests are much, much less. And we know that if we can identify the patient, you know, before they start to go down that slippery slope at the top of the curve, then their outcomes are much, much better. So Mm -hmm. I kind of relate the same thing to leadership and to teams. If we can identify the signs of a deteriorating team, if we can look at our team and think, okay, you know, these are the signs of a deteriorating team. This is in the yellow zone. This is in the red zone, you know. Um, mm. You know, what are the things, what's happening in our team? There's, there's bitchiness, there's gossip, there's, you know, people calling in sick, there's people coming in late, people, you know, not, low levels of compliance, there's, um, you know, high uh, staff turnover, all those kind of things that are signs of a deteriorating team. So picking up on those signs early and then intervening, like in the situation of an arrest, where we can intervene early, we're going to have much, much better outcomes as well. So that's where it's like CPR for your team, right? Because we want teams not only to survive, we want them to thrive. And so I talk a lot about that with companies as well. It's like, Mm -hmm. you know, reviving, surviving and thriving in the workplace culture because we don't want our teams just to be, you know, bumbling along and only just surviving. We know for patients that's not great. So we want to see our teams really thriving. And that's where those examples of leadership and those proactive organisational investment in in hospital culture. And that doesn't look like, you know, I I do know of one place where, you know, they said, oh, yeah, we're already investing all this money in culture. And I asked some people there, well, like, well, what does that look like? And they said, oh, we just get an email every week, like asking us to fill out all these questionnaires. And then, you know, some little girl from a... um, you know, like a new grad from a um, consultancy comes in in her miniskirt and high heels and be like, so guys, let's just talk about culture for a second. And they're like, what, who are you? Like, what are you doing, you know? So I think that, you know, that takes a realistic, you know, what I would love is to see CEOs and scrubs. I've got, um, yeah, to to see the CEOs walking on the floor, the director of nursing on the floor, on the other side of the bed sheet, you know, making beds with people saying like, what's going on here? How is Mm. this affecting you? What's going on? Because I think there's such a big disconnect between management and what is actually going and the outcomes for the patient as well. Mm. But I think in answer to your question, there are things that we can do as well in terms of that self-leadership, 
and also just in terms of our team what like noticing what's happening on our team you know is there a space here that we could do a regular debrief I just think that that would be so beneficial is you know at handover and you know it's tricky because they're you know might not want to be vulnerable with certain members of your team or like there's a whole team dynamics but if that is led well and debrief is something that we do regularly like you know um we do handover or yeah let's say we we have a huddle first where we where we debrief the day Mm -hmm. then we do handover and it just becomes part of our workplace culture like if we is there a way that we can begin to heal ourselves you know we're looking at you know basically an entire workforce that's burnt out you know the stats are still saying 50 percent of nurses are burnt out but i reckon anecdotally i'm i'm going like 90 to 100 percent you know um and and so we can't wait for the government or the organization to to step in and do something magical i I just think the things they're talking about now are ridiculous in terms mm. of the measures that they want to bring in, you know, it's it's mm. like this, you know, where is the funding going to come from? Where is that organisational change going to happen? And so that's my aim as a professional speaker is actually talking to those people in power, um, you know, and 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 getting them to see that. But is there a way as as nurses and health professionals that we can actually do that from within, both within ourselves mm. as individuals by the things that we've talked about already? Mm. Um, but is there a way that we can share our experiences and share our stories together and heal yeah. heal from within to say, mm. you know what, it's okay that you're feeling like that. I'm feeling like that too, you know. I was really sad that that patient died yesterday. Um, that really affected me, you know, because we know the uptake of EAP is like 4%, something like that, ridiculous, you know. So that's not working. So how can we do it so that we have some kind of a shared experience, you know. Mm. Um, I think back to one of my first jobs working at um, at Royal Prince Alfred Hospital and we just had this this winner of a team, like such a good team. And we'd go, I mean, it's easy there in the middle of the city, but after work we'd all go out for a drink and you'd just have that debrief over, over a drink, you know. And, you know, we, it was hectic. We, we were faced with some really, really challenging patients. But, you know, I remember my, my husband saying, you know, what's the difference between that and, and the next job? And it was just those after-work drinks of just, you know, there was a culture of like, oh, my gosh, this has been a day, you know, let's just all head to the pub, you know, and I'll, it's like my shout, you know, and sometimes the nub would come and she'd shout, you know, and mm. that was, it was such a good culture, that, that just that organic debrief and so and that team's still together. That was yeah. when I was um, CNE at, at, um, at RPA and that team, we built such a strong team that, like, 15 years later, they're, they're still together um, mm-hmm. doing amazing things. So, yeah, I just wonder, is there, I don't have any stats to back that up. It's just more mm-hmm. of a question. Is there a way that we can heal each other from within? Yeah, I think that that is beautifully said. I feel very inspired by what you just said there in terms of, I love your be- between the flags analogy. For those that are not in New South Wales, it's like your track and trigger early warning, escalation, I'm sure people got that. Um, but I love that idea of, like, it's almost like a cultural arrest. Like, it you is. know, we're, we're leading into a cultural arrest. Like, let's do something about it. Like, why do we think it's okay to not do anything about it? It, it is, is a cultural arrest. It's exactly. Yeah. It's like, you know, and, you know, are we taking the heartbeat of our team? What, like, what's their respiratory rate? Like, are they even breathing? Are they turning up, you know, mm-hmm. to work almost half dead? Like, it is. It's like a cultural arrest. And, and we yeah. need to work out ways of breathing new life into the workforce. And I think there are ways of doing that that, you know, that aren't 
going to cost huge amounts of money. Yeah, I think um, in you saying that, it brings up so many ideas and experiences that I've had. And when you were talking through that, that, that debriefing and all of that, you know, what comes to mind is the concept of psychological safety in the workplace and making sure you know, there's a lot of work and research in this space. Amy Edmondson, for anybody that's listening, is phenomenal in this space. And she talks about psychological safety and creating that psychological safety for yourself. Um, and I love that healing within analogy, but also within the team so that people can open up at a debrief because who's been to a nursing debrief where everybody just sits there and looks out the window and no one feels vulnerable to share no one's open no one is curious everybody is Brene, Brene Brown says everybody's got their armor on and they've turned into a transformer and no one's getting it there's something blocking everything right they don't want to feel so it's not safe to feel and to let go and to be vulnerable and I think we've got a whole lot of work to do around that space of, you know, if you need to come to the nurses, a nurse manager's office and have a cry, like, that's fine. <laughs> but why does why is the perception that that's not okay? Like, my manager can't see me like this, right? People would apologize to me as a manager when they'd come in and say, Liam, I, I shouldn't be doing this to you, you know, or Liam, you shouldn't be coming on the floor. And I love that thought of let's get the Don on the floor doing the work so they actually see real time what is happening, and they can be part of the solution. Uh, I totally agree that they're totally disconnected and um, avoidant, completely avoidant, um, and then just keep layering this, you know, we need to reduce staff, we need to reduce staff. How can we be more efficient? Instead of asking, like, how can we um, optimise what we have? How can we do a pulse check? And then the trouble or the thing that I think is missing from my experience is how do we measure that? How do we measure that? Because there's so many ways that each area could design and develop something, but the organization needs to invest in a tool that then measures it across the board that's not just a generic culture survey. <laughs> it, has to, it has to be more than that. Yeah, um, and there we- are actually, there's some great apps and things that are being developed, um, mm. you know, around around that, on not just specifically for nursing, but actually measuring team culture and measuring the heartbeat of the culture. So, you know, in, in the world of entrepreneurship and innovation, you know, I have mm. come across some wonderful people doing things around in exactly that, around, you know, an app which measures how our team's going, which tracks communication, and all that kind of stuff, um, you know, so that they're, they're really worth looking into. So, yeah, definitely. But I think, I, you know, I, I like to think that, that hospital executives aren't mean, horrible people, you know. I think they sometimes can just lose track of, of, of what those decisions, those budget calls, mm-hmm. you know, what that actually means on, on the floor. Like just a, a simple example of, you know, if, if I'm nursing and I've got, let's say, six patients that I'm looking after, but somebody needs a nurse, nurse escort down to x-ray, well, who's looking after my other five patients while I'm gone? Yes, you might say to your buddy like, oh, hey, can you watch my patients? I'm going downstairs. But then you get stuck in x-ray for half an hour you know, you come back, you're half an hour behind on your med round, like no one's actually going to stop and then pick up your med round or, you know, those kind of things. That's like, you know, where, you know, when I first started, there was a floating nurse and that was their job, like all day. They were just doing the escorts. They were doing, you know, those kind of things. Just, you know, so by having that one extra staff member on, that alleviates all of those, you know, the busy surgical ward where people are going up and down to x-ray and different procedures all the time, you know, um, and you, you're having to leave your patients un, basically unmonitored for that for that half an hour so you know obviously if something went drastically wrong everyone would jump in but 
you know, in the general, where are we actually looking after those patients? So, you know, those kind of things which they just don't see when they're making budget cuts and making staff cuts from an office somewhere, you know? Yeah, yeah, it's very interesting. There's definitely that disconnect. And I think it's worth remembering as well, as you move through the ladders or up your career in healthcare, uh, there's no really, there's no more training unless you go out and get it, right? The more you build your career, you really have to go out and find it for yourself. And I think a lot of people maybe don't recognize that or they think that what what's got them here will get them there. Right. And like you and I both know, like your professional speaking, you've got to put so much work into it to get to that point where you can deliver it. Um, and it's the same being a nurse student manager or an educator. You have to reinvest in yourself to get yourself to the place where you can do it from a place of abundance and you know gratitude and joy rather than burnout and hating the system and getting caught up in the narrative. Uh, that, that is on the individual ultimately so that they can be empowered and continue to build their career. And I think the more that I see people climb, the more I'm like, it highlights all the gaps, right? Because we're mm. great clinicians, but does that mean that I'm a great director of nursing? Not necessarily. Yeah, um, and I think that's a really important point is that there is a massive disconnect there. And, you know, that somebody who is an excellent nurse is a completely different skill set to someone being an excellent manager, you know. I never mm. had in my sights to be a nurse unit manager because I used to watch, you know, them doing budget sheets and, you know, having to do the roster and all that. I'm like, how would you even get your head around that? You know, like that looks like my worst nightmare. I'm, I want to just care for people. I don't want to do spreadsheets and, you know, all that. So, you know, and, and it's just assumed that you're going to just step up because you're an excellent nurse. You're now going to be an excellent nurse unit manager. And that's, that's not the case at all. And, you know, I think there needs to be that really that proactive investment in growing our leadership so that they do, you know, have that, those opportunities to grow into those management positions. Mm, for sure yes love that oh my goodness we could talk all day i'm we very good you and me liam <laughs> <laughs> um but before we kind of sign off is there anything in particular that you'd love to share with the high performance nursing community anything we covered today anything that's kind of on the tip of your tongue that you you want to get out there into the world and share with these beautiful nurses I mean, it's just—it's really, I asked on one of the forums, I, I put a, a call out and said, look, I'm doing this professional speaking to, you know, hopefully to hospital executives and things. What do you want me to say? And I got 80 responses and people from, you know, all, all sorts of different types of nursing. But, you know, the general kind of message that came through was we are not okay. We're mm-hmm. not okay. And I think, you know, there's power in acknowledging that, you know, we get told by the government, the healthcare system is coping, we're all okay, everything's fine, you know. And to just acknowledge and say, you know, even just to say to another person, I'm not okay. Mm. I think there's so much power in that. Um, you know, and as a, as a whole, we are not okay. And it's kind of a glum note to leave on. But I think it before we acknowledge it, I don't think that there's anything, like we're not, we're, we're not going to move past that. Like you said, we're just going to be coming from that place of burnout and frustration mm-hmm. and bitterness, you know. How can we turn that around to, to start finding the healing and the hope back within ourselves mm-hmm. and within our profession again? Because it is a great profession, you know, and it just breaks my heart that, that so many people are just getting burnt out and leaving. And we're losing that critical mass of that, you know, that senior experience to pass on the, those uh, qualities and that those skills onto our junior staff. So... I think that's yeah what I what I would love to say is you know let let's be the answer for each other mm-hmm. let let's find the healing mm-hmm. within ourselves 
um, yeah. so that we can, you know, keep keep sticking with it and keep investing in in those, you know, beautiful new grads that are coming through. <laughs> that is beautifully said. I'm not going to add anything to that because it is so well said. Um, Sarah, thank you so much for being on the podcast. We definitely will have to have you back on in the future. We'd love to have you. Um, but tell us a little bit more about where kind of people can find you, um, where they can get in touch with you. And all of these links will be in the show notes. And also, what are you doing? What, what's coming up for you? Where can people maybe see you at a gig? Yeah, sure. Uh, so you can just go to my website, so www.sarahmorse.com.au. The link will be there in the show notes, as you said. So that's got all my details and contact details on there. Really love to hear from your listeners as well. I don't have any public gigs coming up. My The couple of gigs that I have are sort of in-house uh, private gigs. So I'm flying up to Darwin to speak at the Renal Society of Australasia. So if you've got any renal nurses in your in your audience, uh, I look forward to maybe meeting you up there. Um, but otherwise, if you want to book me for your uh, for your hospital, your workplace, your organisation, uh, then also just get in touch on my website. I'd love to hear from you. I love that so much. Yes, book Sarah out, get her into your organisation. She's amazing and doing amazing work. And each nurse, we were just saying earlier, one nurse at a time, we can influence and, and uh, positively change the system so that we can you know, love the work that we do. And like you said, bring the human spirit back to it and really truly thrive as a workforce. So very excited to see what you do moving forward, Sarah. Thank you so much. And thanks, everybody, for listening. Um, until next time, stay safe and stay forever curious. Please make sure that you leave a review if you enjoyed this podcast. It does help us reach more people. And we want to make sure we reach what the half a million nurses that are in Australia. So let's make it happen. Thanks, Sarah. Thank you. Thanks so much, Liam. I'll catch you later. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast episode, please take a wee minute to leave a review. It would mean the absolute world to me. If you are ready to start taking action in your career and you need some support, why wait? Come and join my private Facebook community. The link is in the show notes below. Within the community, we take what we discuss in this podcast and we put it into action. Currently, I am looking for nurses who are ready to stop playing small and invest in themselves to create the life and the career they want to live. If that sounds like you, then please get in touch. Until next time, thanks for listening. Stay safe and stay forever curious, my nursing friends.